Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Macro Matters, the new economics and politics podcast from the Aberdeen Standard Investments Research Institute. My name is Paul Diggle. I'm an economist at Aberdeen Standard and along with my colleague Stephanie Kelly, our political economist, we are the co-hosts of this podcast and we're very excited to bring you weekly analysis from the world of macroeconomics and geopolitics and financial markets. So today we're talking about the US Federal Reserve's recent policy review with James McCann and Luke Bartholomew, two of our monetary policy experts. And later on, Steph is going to give us her her latest views and thoughts on what's happening with Brexit. But let's start with Fed Chair Jerome Powell unveiling his shiny new inflation target. Our new statement indicates that we will seek to achieve inflation that averages 2% over time. Therefore, following periods when inflation has running below 2%, appropriate monetary policy will likely aim to achieve inflation moderately above 2% for some time. Well, that was the latest from Jay Powell. And here is our senior U.S. economist, James McCann, who's joining us from Boston, Massachusetts, giving us his headline takeaway from the Fed's policy review. The Fed's record over the past decade is not particularly flattering. The recovery from the financial crisis was painfully slow and inflation ran well below target for much of this period. In response, the Fed has just completed a review of its monetary policy strategy, which will see it shift towards a loose average inflation target. Under this new framework, the Fed will try and correct for bouts of low inflation by allowing price growth to subsequently exceed 2% for a period of time. Complementing this, the Fed has subtly changed how it interprets the maximum employment aspect of its mandate and now aims to eliminate shortfalls from full employment rather than deviations. In practice, this means that low unemployment should not trigger policy tightening in itself. If this framework was in place over the past decade, it seems very unlikely that the Fed would have been hiking rates in 2015 and 2016, given that inflation had been undershooting its target for a number of years. Taking this looser policy lesson forward, the new approach does suggest that monetary policy will be more supportive for a longer period of time, and it underlines the Fed's recent guidance that it's not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. However, the review does feel like a missed opportunity. First, some more radical changes to the Fed's framework, such as higher inflation targets or nominal GDP targets, were not even considered. Second, the average inflation framework actually only provides a loose promise to make up the past past inflation shortfalls. And then finally, the review is pretty light on new tools to help the Fed actually achieve higher inflation. Therefore, while the policy review does perhaps reduce the risk of some policy mistakes that we saw over the past decade, it doesn't inspire huge confidence that the Fed will genuinely deliver much stronger growth in inflation over the cycle. Well, James, that was a great overview. Thank you very much. So, You and Luke wrote uh, a paper at the start of this Fed review process, laying out options for reformulating the the tools and targets of monetary policy. Um, Why don't we start with you, James, laying out the background for the review? Why did the Fed think it was necessary to undergo a reassessment of its tools and its target? 
Yeah. So I think the first the first step was just an honest looking back at the the decade after the financial crisis. And, you know, as I mentioned there, the record really doesn't stand up particularly well. And when the Fed tried to diagnose what went wrong, obviously it looked at its own decision making and behavior, but perhaps more fundamentally looked at the decline in the the real interest rate. So a whole range of forces have served to push the the, the equilibrium interest rate in economies, that interest rate that sort of supports normal levels of economic activity lower. And what that means is that it robs the Fed of policy ammunition. It means that it finds it harder and harder to get actual real interest rates in the economy low enough to stimulate uh, stimulate activity, to push that actual effective interest rate below its, its equilibrium interest rate. So what I think it decided it needed to do was find a, a new framework or set or two set of tools which it could use to combat this declining policy ammunition and this battle against the lower equilibrium interest rate that's that's perviating not just in the US economy, but many economies. Yeah, it's worth underlining that point, I suppose, that this wasn't just a, a Fed problem. Indeed, a lot of central banks were, were dealing with issues of insufficient policy room and, and missing their inflation targets. Um, but so, Luke, um, why don't you tell us at the start of this process, when you guys were putting your preview paper together, what were the sort of range of options that the Fed could have gone with in terms of solving um, these problems as, as James has outlined them? Sure. So I think there are a couple of different paths the Fed could have gone down attacking more or less directly those problems that James spoke to there. One, declining policy space and two, systematically failing to meet its inflation target and so the price level drifting well below the level that it should have been at. One option would have been to pursue a higher inflation target, perhaps 4% or so, and this is an idea that's been suggested by a number of leading economists such as Olivier Blanchard back when he was chief economist at the IMF. And the idea is that that attacks the uh, issue of declining policy space directly in the sense that if it's credible, if it's believed, then you should get an almost one-for-one increase in the equilibrium interest rate as much as the inflation target is increased. So if you go from a 2 to 4% inflation target, the equilibrium interest rate should increase by two percentage points. So what that means is, uh, on one level, you get more space, as it were, to cut interest rates before you hit zero in equilibrium. So it provides um, more space to respond to shocks in that sense. But at a deeper level, where it, where it really gets by is if uh, inflation expectations stick at that 4%, even as nominal interest rates, the policy interest rates fall to zero, that means that real interest rates, the inflation-adjusted interest rate, um, falls much deeper into negative territory. So if you had a 2% inflation target, you'd only get a minus 2% real rate when you're at zero policy Whereas with a 4% inflation target, you get minus 4% real rate. So you get that much more stimulus in a real rate sense from having a higher inflation target. Now, of course, that does depend, A, on the policy being credible, that it's believed. And you might say, well, the Fed couldn't even make 2%, so why should we believe it would get to 4%? Um, Second, there are microeconomic costs to having higher inflation. We tend to believe that it does sort of distort the price signaling process in some ways and the other costs associated with higher inflation. So maybe that's a reason you don't want to push inflation too high. But beside all of that, the Fed pretty much shut that debate down from the very start and before it even got very far in its policy review, 
said that it wasn't considering this. So, so much for a higher inflation target. The other route it could have gone down was to attack this issue of the price level falling well below its target in a direct way by having a policy framework that forces it to make up lost ground. So the salient feature of a standard inflation target is that bygones are bygones in the sense of whatever inflation you delivered last year, this year you're still aiming to meet your inflation target. So whether you're massively above or below 2% last year, this year you're just aiming for 2%. And if you keep on falling below 2% year in, year out, then the price level massively deviates from where it should be. If you have a makeup strategy, a strategy that forces you to set policy in the future on the basis of what you delivered in the past, then you can try to ensure the price level ends up over time where it should have been, even if you go on a bit of a journey in terms of the inflation you deliver each year. And you can do that in a pretty standard price level sense. I only care about where the price level is and have a price level target. Or you could have a nominal GDP target, that is sort of the real growth plus inflation. And you tried to target a consistent um, level growth in that. That is sort of the dollar size of the economy, as it were. And this has quite a nice stabilization property in the sense of how much of that um, nominal GDP that's made up of inflation and how much is made up of real growth will sort of be decided by the economy itself. It, it's a natural adjusting mechanism. But again, the Fed didn't seem particularly interested in going down that route. And those those are probably the two options that in your paper you thought were, you advocated for most, you thought were sort of the most radical steps forward in terms of how policy could have been reformulated. But in the end, James, as you aligned at the start, it was the average inflation target that they went with, which is sort of um, a more modest um, reformulation of, of their target. What do we know about the average inflation target? Like how, over what period are they trying to average? How are they going to make up for shortfalls? How well is this target actually being specified? Yeah, that's right. I think, I think at the moment, really, we have limited information on it. We obviously have the, 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 the initial highlights that the Fed is guiding that following periods of inflation, appropriate monetary policy, sorry, low inflation, appropriate monetary policy relating to achieve inflation that's moderately above 2% for some time. So, you know, obviously this is in the framework which is very, very strict in terms of a mathematical calculation of how much inflation you need to make out, a, a genuine flexing in that inflation target that would link you much more, more closely to that price level that, that Luke was discussing there. Instead, this seems a little bit more, a little bit more general. Um, I think there's one or two words in there that we can take some signal from. The first is the moderate inflation overshoot. So under a, a price level target, it absolutely can become consistent that if the Fed's looking to make up large undershoots in inflation, then actually it needs to go some way above 2% for a significant period of time. This moderate overshoot may be in our mind, and this has been confirmed by one or two Fed speakers over the last few weeks, speaks to an inflation overshoot around, let's say, two and a quarter percent. So it is sort of capping to some extent the strength of that makeup and the strength that they'll be prepared to allow inflation to run. And then the second maybe cautious word that gives me some some pauses for some time. So, you know, you highlighted there over what period do you try and uh, create your average inflation target. Clearly, this isn't specifying that. So it's not forcing the Fed to bring inflation back to the 
towards the price level over a specific period of time or forcing the Fed to make up for a certain portion of the of the of the undershoot. So my concern is that the the structure of this average inflation target gives it relatively weak makeup characteristics. Um, and that means that probably when the when the market's thinking about a true sort of average inflation over the business cycle, it might, might still suspect that inflation will tend a little bit below the Fed's target on average, because this framework isn't as aggressive as it could have been in forcing the Fed to, to correct for those undershoots, which are inevitable during during periods in which you suffer recessions and you know huge losses of output. So obviously the the average inflation target wasn't the only way in which, in which the Fed has um, rejigged its target. Obviously, the other side of the dual mandate, the employment uh, target has also been reformulated a little bit. Luke, can you can you explain how the Fed reformulated that part of its dual mandate and, 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 and what, what it means, what we're to take away from that? The, the the linguistic change, at least, is that the Fed will no longer um, target deviations in employment, but only shortfalls. So the idea is that there's this equilibrium rate of unemployment, that if you push unemployment too low, um, that starts generating inflationary pressure. And therefore, a, a, an inflation targeting central bank needs to ensure that it doesn't push um, unemployment too low, otherwise it will start to build up pent up inflationary pressure. It needs to get ahead of this and start tightening policy before we see the manifestations of inflation, before um, we start to get this overheating. That's the idea. And I think some of that thinking may have permeated the Fed in 2015, 2016, 2017, when they were tightening policy even though inflation was extremely low because the sense was, well, wage growth is going to come because unemployment is so low. What this shift means is that those kind of policy moves are no longer going to happen, that they will no longer care that unemployment is, quote unquote, too low. Um, Ultimately, this idea of what equilibrium unemployment is, is entirely unobservable in its own terms. It's this latent variable that I think Jay Powell himself is quite uncomfortable. I think he's quite uncomfortable with these star equilibrium values that you can't observe in their own terms, that they can only be observed by virtue of how the rest of the economy behaves. And he'd much rather just set policy on the basis of how the rest of the economy is behaving. And so rather than set policy, tighten policy because unemployment's low, he will wait until inflation is picked up. And at that point, you truly do know that unemployment is too low. So again, it's another way that they've cemented this notion that they won't be tightening too early. And this is a slightly easier stance of policy going forward on a systematic basis than it might otherwise have been before. Yeah, I suppose the one way I sort of think about that change of language um, away from targeting deviations from full employment and only targeting shortfalls from full employment is it sort of introduces an asymmetry, which they'll allow the economy to run too hot, but they don't want it to run such that there's a shortfall of, of demand. And that asymmetry is meant, in a sense, to balance out the asymmetry represented by the lower bound and the, and the lack of, of cutting space. I suppose that that's another way to think about that, that reformulation. Um, but James, yeah. what, let, let's maybe think about practical implications for 
the near-term Fed outlook. So you're obviously a US economist. You're day in, day out forecasting and, and the Fed and following them closely. What do you think they, they do next in terms of the policy outlook? And does the review dramatically change what you expected them to do? Well, I think the next step for the Fed is trying to provide some signal on how it intends to to meet this sort of explicit inflation overshoot that it's now building into its to its framework. And I think the way that it will do that predominantly is through using its its current tools, but perhaps with enhanced forward guidance. So I think at the September meeting, it seems likely that the Fed will directly tie the policy outlook to this new framework. So it will promise not to raise policy and potentially not to change the the rolling uh, quantitative easing asset purchases that they're carrying out until they've achieved this inflation overshoot that they've built into their framework. So it's a way of, of, I guess, committing themselves and putting more force some more 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 signal behind the framework that they're really they're really aiming to get this this inflation higher in practice we do think that will take a, a long time so you know implicitly this suggests that you know, policy will be on hold for for a long long period of time given that we think that there's a a large disinflationary shock taking hold of the US economy at the moment based on the covid the covid damage and the the hit that that's done especially to to the labor market so you know, I think this builds in a, an expectation that policy will be lower for longer, which had already, I think, become become fairly commonplace in the market. In terms of getting to grips with the, the challenges and what do they amount to, you know, maybe maybe we can think about this. I think the discussion is almost centered on on two things. One is sort of Fed policy mistakes over the last decade, maybe this uh, willingness to tighten too early on the prospect of higher inflation, baked off the fact that unemployment is drifting lower and an expectation that that will trigger those usual sort of wage growth and inflationary mechanisms that we might have seen might have seen in the past. Now, on that aspect, you know, perhaps this framework provides a bit more, uh, a bit of a better way for the Fed of of thinking about the current inflation setting dynamic, mm-hmm. um, some of the shocks that it's seeing. So, you know, maybe it does reduce the likelihood of those policy mistakes. I'm less convinced it deals with the sort of more fundamental issue of them just running out of or having less policy ammunition and not having the the tools or not willing to use the tools to take action. I, you know, as Luke highlighted, it doesn't really get around this issue with lower equilibrium rates. Maybe it raises inflation expectations a little, but not enough to significantly counter what's been a big decline in, in our star over recent years and a big decline in policy room. So, so I think maybe Maybe it provides more discipline around their policy, reduces the risk of policy mistakes to some extent, at least from the, the, the perspective of premature tightening. But I'm still worried that they're not really getting to grips in the environment in which they're just they're just fighting you know, big shocks with less effective tools. Yeah, and I suppose um, that's obviously a challenge for, for a lot of central banks. And on that note, Luke, is there read across to other central banks post the Fed policy review? You obviously spend a long, a lot of time yourself forecasting uh, the Bank of England. Are they, for example, going to take any any lessons from from what the Fed's done here and change their inflation targets? So I think one lesson we can take from this, and I think it's sort of come across in both the comments that James and I have made, is that in many ways this is a little bit underwhelming in terms of what they've delivered and. The institutional conservatism of central banks is pretty ingrained and getting radical reform out of any of them is a bit of a stretch. I think there is an interesting international macro context to this in the sense that if the Fed is 
systematically keeping policy a bit easier than it might otherwise would have done, that presumably does put downward pressure on the dollar over time versus what it otherwise would have been, and therefore upward pressure on other currencies. And central banks in those areas might have concerns about this, might feel that they need to mirror in some way the Fed in its policy move. This is just because the Fed is a monetary superpower. Other central banks, to some extent, have to, to follow along. I think the Fed benefits from the fact that the mandate it has from Congress is pretty loose in its own sort of way. This dual mandate, as we describe it, of full employment and price stability, the Fed's been able to interpret that in its own sort of way. Whereas, say, for example, the Bank of England has a very explicit mandate given to it by Parliament. It's 2% inflation target. So there's a lot less scope for the Bank of England, say, to go about reinterpreting what it needs to deliver. I think the bank already has the sense that it can be pretty flexible in the way in which it goes about pursuing its inflation target. So I, I don't think there's going to be a big framework review from the bank there. They have, to James's point about tools, um, the Bank of England been going through a review recently about where they think the effective lower bound is, how far interest rates can be cut before it actually starts to hurt the economy. And previously, they thought that number was very modestly positive. They now seem to think that number is very modestly negative. So there is now space in the bank's mind to be able to cut interest rates into negative territory, which I suppose is something. But at the same time as delivering that review, they also said that they don't think now is an appropriate time to use negative rates. So again, like a sign of some conservatism showing through there, we have this tool, but we're not going to use it. Yeah, perfect. And I suppose I would add, as the um, as the economist on our team responsible for forecasting the eurozone economy, that the the European Central Bank, the ECB, is also going through a bit of a, a strategic review in which they may well end up rejigging their inflation target. But in the end, it looks like what they'll probably go with will be a sort of incremental change, probably even more incremental than what the Fed has done. In fact, um, playing to the point you're making, Luke, about. Um, entrenched institutional conservatism, ruling out some of the more radical, but we would argue, um, beneficial reforms that central banks could could go about doing. But look, that's that's all we have time for for that particular segment. Um, James and Luke, that was a super useful overview, and, and thank you very much. So we cross back uh, across the Atlantic to the UK now, and we're going to talk with with stephanie kelly who's our senior political economist and steph is also the co-host of this podcast um, and we're going to talk about latest br- developments in the brexit process here's steph with her overview i'd like to start by welcoming everyone back on board the brexit roller coaster i think we all had a nice break over the summer but clearly Negotiations have kept going, but with limited progress. And the latest provocation this week by the UK government in the form of this controversial internal market bill, I think really underscores a point that needs to be internalised by all investors, is that getting to a deal will be a bumpy ride, so we better buckle up. And although we tend to get really hung up on deal or no deal, actually even a narrow free trade agreement, like what we have in our base case, and what many commentators talk about involves, yes, zero tariffs on most goods, but that really implies significant barriers to trade relative to what we've got today. I also think the UK has 
pretty strong political reasons to do a deal. And those reasons are Northern Ireland and Scotland. And economically, I've never bought that argument that COVID provides some kind of political cover for a hard Brexit because the impact of COVID is so bad that no one will notice the impact of a hard Brexit. To me, it's more like if you're kicking companies while you're down, that seems more like cutting off your nose to spite your face. So I think ultimately there is a path to a narrow free trade agreement, but that free trade agreement is so limited relative to what we have today. And as well as that, there are lots of political pitfalls that could lead you away from that deal and towards a cliff edge come January. Steph, brilliant. So Brexit, for better or worse, obviously went quiet over the summer as uh, all of our priorities shifted elsewhere. But remind us what the latest state of play is. Where are the UK and the EU in the Brexit negotiation process? So the UK and the EU have been making some limited progress in negotiations. There are kind of two key sticking points remaining to get to what they've all kind of agreed they're going for, which, as I said, is a narrow free trade agreement. So that means zero tariffs on goods, but it does imply a degree of um, alignment on what they call the level playing field. So that's things like state aid, regulatory alignment, environmental standards, labor standards. And where the sticking points have really ended up at this point are twofold. One is fisheries. Fisheries might not seem like a really big deal to most people, given that it's a very small part of the UK economy, but it's politically a real hot potato and is seen as, especially at the moment, a sort of a, you know, if you don't have the right to fish in your own waters, then you don't have sovereignty. And that's really, it's taken a real political turn in that way. The second sticking point, which I think is actually much more thorny than that is on state aid. So that's the ability of of governments to support industries that they feel need support. And the EU has argued that it doesn't want a situation where the UK government is uh, providing a lot of state aid to sectors that then compete in the European market and in such a way that it becomes anti-competitive. And that's really where things have gotten stuck. Um, And I think, again, as I said, the UK government's internal market bill this week is doing nothing to help matters and actually is really escalating issues in in, in a really politically important way. Mm. So as we're recording this, we're actually sort of still waiting for the the text of that internal market bill, probably as um, once the podcast goes out, that, that will be available. But... Um, with that caveat in place, what what's the controversy about the internal markets bill? Why is this proving such a contentious piece of UK legislation? There are actually a couple of contentious elements with this bill. Interestingly, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of the legislation. And as you flagged, we don't actually have the writing for the legislation yet. So again, as you said, by the time people listen to this, we may well know what the the detail is. And often with the way legislation is written, that's where the devil is. But essentially, the Internal Market Bill um, basically will give ministers powers to determine which goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland are deemed like at risk of ending up in the Republic and therefore would require customs hurdles. And it would also waive the need for export declarations on goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland and allow the government to decide when EU state aid rules that affect businesses in Northern Ireland should impact linked firms in Great Britain. So a lot of that is getting at this idea that in the withdrawal agreement that was negotiated last year, Northern Ireland is de facto part of the single market and a lot of those conditions I've just named are really not consistent with being a consistent member of the single market or part of the single market. 
So that's where the controversy has come from in terms of the UK, Europe. It's that idea that the international treaty they've already agreed is going to be broken. And so international law will be broken. Again, that's why I said the devil is in the detail of how this kind of legislation is written up. But the second contentious issue is actually not a UK EU issue, but it's an inter-UK issue that I think in a way is somewhat supportive for the overall Brexit process, which is the devolved nations aren't happy with how the bill's been written because they feel that power is being taken away from Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland. And so, you know, not only is it contentious internationally, but also within the UK, there's a lot of political pushback. And when you tend to see that, it's, you know, it becomes more likely that bills get amended uh, such that maybe they become less controversial over time because you need to get to a point where you can actually pass them. So I'm watching very closely the Conservative Party on this because a lot of backbenchers have come out and said they're unhappy. The question is, do enough backbenchers come out and say they're unhappy such that the bill actually gets amended and doesn't be doesn't end up as controversial as it currently looks? Mm-hmm. But as from the standpoint we're at now, obviously that this internal markets bill is looking controversial and, and the UK has sort of ramped up no deal rhetoric in in a few other ways um do you think that is a genuine threat that's a serious um, option the uk is considering or is that all a bluff on on the uk government's part i think it's always really hard to tell the difference between pantomime and genuine drama until after the fact we did have the experience in 2019 where it really looked like they weren't going to get a withdrawal agreement and there really was going to be no deal And then at the very last minute, they salvaged it. I think, as I mentioned, I think there are strong political and economic reasons to get a deal. But I wouldn't go as far as to say this is entirely bluff on the UK government's part. But it is certainly part of a negotiating process. And in any negotiation, you need to look like the side that's more willing to walk away because that gives you maximum um, leverage in order to get what you want. So that's why I kind of say... Overall, I think it's probably part of the negotiating process. I'll put it this way. Did anyone ever expect that the Brexit negotiating process would be straightforward and that we would get to a deal without any kind of political drama? I think not. It's just when you're in the political drama, you do recognise that there's a real risk that this isn't bluffing. And I think we always have to recognise that risk as outsiders to the UK political environment. We're not sitting in number 10 talking to Boris Johnson, so we can't really truly know his incentives and his motivations. So as you you sort of outlined at the start, our our baseline when when we're doing our economic forecasts and you're setting the the geopolitical baseline and we're talking with portfolio managers and, and investors at, at Aberdeen Standard is for uh, an eventual um, narrow free trade agreement. Um, is that a good outcome or is that still quite an economically damaging outcome? Yeah, so I think it's very clearly quite an economically damaging outcome. It really depends on the sector you're talking about. I think there's a tendency to talk headline good, headline bad. Um, In headline terms, bad, but also I think at the sector level, it really depends. So in the absence of a free trade agreement of any kind, there are certain sectors that will be really badly hit, particularly um, agri-foods. They are subject to much higher, what we call most fiber nation tariffs. So the average tariff the EU applies to trading partners that they don't have an explicit trade agreement with. Um, so if you look at some of the things like dairy products, I think, you know, tariffs can be in the range of kind of 20, 30, upwards to 35 percent. You know, those are the kind of tariffs you're talking about. They're like shut down your business level tariffs. So I think 
it's not to say that getting a deal isn't a good thing. It certainly is, particularly for some sectors. For kind of finished goods sectors, for some parts of manufacturing, tariffs aren't as high anyway, and so they might not be the crucial factor. In a limited free trade agreement, what you don't get is easy transit across borders. You don't get these really smooth, efficient supply chains. And a lot of particularly things like autos, for example, auto manufacturers have come out and said, we rely on extreme efficiency for our business model, for the way that we set up, the way that we build our cars, the way that we transport our cars, the way that we sell into other markets. Those all become much more challenging when there have to be some level of customs checks. And when it comes to things like food, there has to be you know, environmental checks, there has to be food safety checks. All of those things are really tangible, substantial barriers that reduce potential growth over time, but particularly for, for sectors that are doing that really cross-border goods trade. And then additionally, for the services sector, it's very unclear which services, which parts of the services sector will be able to continue to have things like regulatory alignment, mutual recognition of qualifications. Those are not parts of a regular limited free trade agreement. So if they are to be included, they need to be part of the negotiations. And you know, at this point where we're at now, it's very hard to see that happening. There are even elements of UK financial services that look unlikely to be covered. And so again, you're talking about much increased barriers to trade relative to what we enjoy today as investors and from an economic perspective. Seth, brilliant. That's a really useful um, overview of what's going on with Brexit. So that's all we've got time for this week. My Thanks to Stephanie and James and, and Luke and to you for listening to the first of uh, Macro Matters, our, our new podcast series. We'll be producing these weekly. As I say, they're hosted by myself and Steph. And I think we've got a great lineup of economists and, and other portfolio managers from across Aberdeen Standard Investments. And I hope you'll continue to join us. Good luck out there. And until next time, goodbye. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen Standard Investments. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns. Return projections are estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.